0: Chapter Seventeen Part Four of Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 17 The Crusades, Their Decline and End. Part four Frederick Barbarossa was already dead in Asia Minor, and the German army was already broken up when, on the twenty fourth of June, eleven ninety, Philip Augustus went and took the oriflamme at Saint Denis on his way to Wesley, where he had appointed to meet Richard, and whence the two kings, in fact set out on the 4th of July to embark with their troops, Philip at Genoa and Richard at Marseilles. They had agreed to touch nowhere until they reached Sicily, where Philip was to arrive the 1st, on the 16th of September, and Richard was eight days later. But instead of simply touching, they passed at Messina all the autumn of 1190 and all the winter of 1190-91, no longer seeming to think of anything but quarrelling and amusing themselves. Nor were grounds for quarrel or opportunities for amusements to seek. Richard, in spite of his promise, was unwilling to marry the Princess Alice, Philip's sister, and Philip, after lively discussion, would not agree to give him back his ward, save in consideration of a sum of ten thousand silver marks, whereof he shall pay us three thousand at the feast of all saints, and year by year in succession at this same feast. Some of their amusements were not more refined than their family arrangements, and ruffianly contests and violent enmities sprang up amidst the feasts and the games, in which kings and knights nearly every evening indulged in the plains round about Messina. One day there came amongst the crusaders thus assembled a peasant, "'driving an ass, laden with those long and strong reeds known by the name of canes. "'English and French, with Richard at their head, bought them of him, "'and mounting on horseback, ran tilt at one another, armed with these reeds by way of lances. "'Richard found himself opposite to a French knight, named William Desbars, "'of whose strength and valour he had already, not without displeasure, had experience in Normandy.' The two champions met with so rude a shock that their reeds broke, and the king's cloak was torn. Richard, in pique, urged his horse violently against the French knight, in order to make him lose his stirrups, but William kept a firm seat, whilst the king fell under his horse, which came down in his impetuosity. Richard, more and more exasperated, had another horse brought and charged a second time. "'but with no more success, the immovable knight. "'One of Richard's favourites, the Earl of Leicester, "'would have taken his place and avenged his lord. "'But let be, Robert,' said the king, "'it is a matter between him and me. "'And he once more attacked William Desbarres, "'and once more to no purpose. "'Fly from my sight,' cried he to the knight, "'and take care never to appear again.' for I will be ever a mortal foe to thee, to thee and thine. William des Bars, somewhat discomfited, went in search of the King of France, to put himself under his protection. Philip accordingly paid a visit to Richard, who merely said, I'll not hear a word. It needed nothing less than the prayers of the bishops, and even, it is said, a threat of excommunication, to induce Richard to grant William de Bars the king's peace, during the time of pilgrimage. Such a comrade was assuredly very inconvenient, and might be under difficult circumstances very dangerous. Philip, without being susceptible or quarrelsome, was naturally independent, and disposed to act on every occasion according to his own ideas. He resolved not to break with Richard, but to divide their commands, "'and separate their fortunes. "'On the approach of spring, 1191, "'he announced to him "'that the time had arrived "'for continuing their pilgrimage "'to the Holy Land, "'and that, as for himself, "'he was quite ready to set out. "'I am not ready,' said Richard, "'and I cannot depart "'before the middle of August. "'Philip, after some discussion, "'set out alone with his army. "'On the 30th of March,' And the fourteenth of April arrived before Saint Jean of the Acre. This important place, of which Saladin had made himself master nearly four years before, was being besieged by the last king of Jerusalem, Guy de Lusignan, at the head of the Christians of Palestine, and by a multitude of Crusaders—Genoese, Danish, Flemish, and German—who had flocked freely to the enterprise. A strong and valiant Mussulman garrison was defending St. Jean d'Acre. Saladin manoeuvred incessantly for its relief, and several battles had already been fought beneath the walls. When the king of France arrived, he was received by the Christians' besieging, says the chronicles of St. Denis, with supreme joy, as if he were an angel come down from heaven. Philip set vigorously to work, to push on the siege, but at his departure he had promised Richard not to deliver the grand assault, until they had formed a junction before the place with all their forces. Richard, who had set out from Messina at the beginning of May, though he had said that he would not be ready till August, lingered again on the way, to reduce the island of Cyprus, and to celebrate there his marriage with Berengaria of Navarre in lieu of alice of france at last he arrived on the seventh of june before st jean d'acre and several assaults in succession were made on the place with equal determination on the part of the besiegers and the besieged the tumultuous waves of the franks says an arab historian rolled towards the walls of the city with the rapidity of a torrent and they climbed the half-ruined battlements as wild goats climbed precipitous rocks, whilst the Saracens threw themselves upon the besiegers, like stones, unloosed from the top of a mountain. At length, on the 13th of July, 1191, in spite of the energetic resistance offered by the garrison, which defended itself, as a lion defends his blood-stained den, St. Jean d'Acre surrendered. The terms of capitulation stated that two hundred thousand pieces of gold should be paid to the chiefs of the Christian army, that sixteen hundred prisoners and the wood of the True Cross should be given up to them, and that the garrison as well as all the people of the town should remain in the conqueror's power, pending full execution of the treaty. Whilst the siege was still going on, the discord between the kings of France and England was increasing in animosity and venom. The conquest of Cyprus had become a new subject of dispute. When the French were most eager for the assault, King Richard remained in his tent, and so the besieged had scarcely ever to repulse more than one or other of the kings and armies at the time. Saladin, it is said, showed Richard particular attention, sending him grapes and pears from Damascus, and Philip conceived some mistrust of these relations. In camp the common talk, combined with anxious curiosity, was that Philip was jealous of Richard's warlike popularity, and Richard was jealous of the power and political weight of the King of France. When St. Jean d'Acre had been taken, the judicious Philip, in view of what it had cost the Christians of East and West, in time and blood, to recover this single town, considered that a fresh and complete conquest of Palestine and Syria, which was absolutely necessary for a re-establishment of the kingdom of Jerusalem, was impossible. He had discharged what he owed to the crusade, and the course now permitted and prescribed to him was to give his attention to France. The news he received from home was not encouraging. His son Louis, hardly four years old, had been dangerously ill, and he himself fell ill, and remained some days in bed, in the midst of the town he had just conquered. His enemies called his illness in question, for already there was a rumor abroad that he had an idea of giving up the crusade, and returning to France. But the details given by contemporary chronicles, about the effects of his illness, scarcely permit it to be regarded as a sham. Violent sweats, they say, committed such havoc with his bones and all his members, that the nails fell from his fingers, and the hair from his head, insomuch that it was believed, and, indeed, the rumour is not yet dispelled, that he had taken a deadly poison. There was nothing strange in Philip's illness, after all his fatigues, in such a country and such a season. Saladin, too, was ill at the same time, and more than once unable to take part with his troops in their engagements. But however that may be, a contemporary English chronicle, Benedict, abbot of Peterborough, relates that on the 22nd of July, 1191, whilst King Richard was plying chess with the Earl of Gloucester, the Bishop of Beauvoir, the Duke of Burgundy, and two Knights of Consideration, "'presented themselves before him "'on behalf of the King of France. "'They were dissolved in tears,' says he, "'in such sort they could not utter a single word. "'And seeing them so moved, "'those present wept in their turn for pity's sake. "'Weep not,' said King Richard to them, "'I know what ye be come to ask. "'Your lord, the King of France, "'desires to go home again.' and ye be come in his name to ask, on his behalf, my counsel, and leave to get him gone. It is true, sir, you know all, answered the messengers. Our king saith, that if he depart not speedily from this land, he will surely die. It will be for him and for the kingdom of France, replied King Richard. Eternal shame, if he go home without fulfilling the work for which he came and he shall not go hence by my advice. But if he must die or return home, let him do what he will, and what may appear to him expedient for him, for him and his. The source from which this story comes, and the tone of it, are enough to take from it all authority. For it is the custom of monastic chronicles to attribute to political or military characters emotions and demonstrations "'alien to their position and their times. "'Philip Augustus, moreover, "'was one of the most excited, "'most insensible, "'to any other influence "'but that of his own mind, "'and most disregardful "'of his enemy's bitter speeches, "'of all the kings in French history. "'He returned to France "'after the capture of St. Jean d'Acre "'because he considered "'the ultimate success of the crusade impossible.' and his return necessary for the interests of France and for his own. He was right in thus thinking and acting, and King Richard, when insultingly reproaching him for it, did not foresee that a year later he would himself be doing the same thing, and would give up the crusade without having obtained anything more for Christendom, except fresh reverses. On the 31st of July, 1191, Philip, leaving with the army of the Crusaders, ten thousand foot and five hundred knights, under the command of Duke Hugh of Burgundy, who had orders to obey King Richard, set sail for France, and a few days after Christmas in the same year, landed in his kingdom, and forthwith resumed, at Fontainebleau, according to some, and at Paris, according to others, the regular direction of his government, We shall see before long with what intelligent energy and with what success he developed and consolidated the territorial greatness of France and the influence of the kingship to her security in Europe and her prosperity at home. From the 1st of August 1191 to the ninth of October 1192 King Richard remained alone in the East, as chief of the Crusade and defender of Christendom, He pertains, during that period, to the history of England, and no longer to that of France. We will, however, recall a few facts to show how fruitless, for the cause of Christendom in the East, was the prolongation of his stay, and what strange deeds, at one time of savage barbarism, and at another of mad pride, or fantastic knight-errantry, were united in him, with noble instincts and the most heroic courage. On the twentieth of August, eleven ninety one, five weeks after the surrender of Saint Jean d'Acre, he found that Saladin was not fulfilling with sufficient promptitude the conditions of capitulation, and to bring him up to time, he ordered the decapitation, before the walls of the place, of, according to some, twenty five hundred, and according to others, five thousand Mussulman prisoners remaining in his hands. The only effect of this massacre was that during Richard's first campaign, after Philip's departure for France, Saladin put to the sword all the Christians, taken in battle or caught struggling, and ordered their bodies to be left without burial, as those of the garrison of St. Jean d'Acre had been. Some months afterward Richard conceived the idea of putting an end to the struggle between Christendom and Islamery, which he was not succeeding in terminating by war, by a marriage. He had a sister, Jean of England, widow of William II, king of Sicily. And Saladin had a brother, Malek Athel, a valiant warrior, respected by the Christians. Richard had proposals made to Saladin to unite them in marriage, and set them to reign together over the Christians and Muslims in the kingdom of Jerusalem. The only result of the negotiation was to give Saladin time for repairing the fortifications of Jerusalem, and to bring down upon King Richard and his sister, on the part of the Christian bishops, the fiercest threats of the fulminations of the church. With the exception of this ridiculous incident, Richard's life, during the whole course of this year, was nothing but a series of great or small battles, desperately contested, against Saladin. When Richard had obtained a success, he pursued it in a haughty, passionate spirit. When he suffered a check, he offered Saladin peace, but always on condition of surrendering Jerusalem to the Christians. And Saladin always answered, Jerusalem never was yours, and we may not without sin give it up to you, for it is the place where the mysteries of our religion were accomplished, and the last one of my soldiers will perish, before the Muslims renounce, conquests made in the name of Mahomet. Twice Richard and his army drew near Jerusalem. Without his daring to look upon it, he said, since he was not in a condition to take it. At last, in the summer of 1192, the two armies and the two chiefs began to be weary of a war without result. A great one, however, for Saladin, and the Mussulmans was the departure of Richard and the Crusaders. Being unable to agree about conditions for a definitive peace, they contented themselves on both sides with a truce for three years and eight months, leaving Jerusalem in possession of the Mossulmans, but open for worship to the Christians, in whose hands remained, at the same time, the towns they were in occupation off on the Moritim coast from Jaffa to Tyre. This truce, which was called peace, having received the signature of all the Christian and Mussulman princes, was celebrated by galas and tournaments at which Christians and Mussulmans seemed for a moment to have forgotten their hate. And on the ninth of October, eleven ninety two, Richard embarked at Saint Jean to Acre to go and run other risks. Thus ended the Third Crusade, undertaken by the three greatest sovereigns and the three greatest armies of Christian Europe, and with the loudly proclaimed object of retaking Jerusalem from the infidels and re establishing a king over the sepulchre of Jesus Christ. The Emperor Frederick Barbarossa perished in it before he had trodden the soil of Palestine. King Philip Augustus retired from it voluntarily so soon as experience had foreshadowed to him the impossibility of success. King Richard abandoned it perforce, after having exhausted upon it his heroism and his knightly pride. The three armies at the moment of departure from Europe amounted, according to the historians of the time, to five or six hundred thousand men, of whom scarcely one hundred thousand returned, and the only result of the Third Crusade was to leave as head over all the most beautiful provinces of Musulman Asia and Africa, Saladin, the most illustrious and most able chieftain, in war and in politics, that Islamry had produced since Mahomet. From the end of the twelfth to the middle of the thirteenth century, between the crusade of Philip Augustus and that of St. Louis, it is usual to count three crusades, over which, we will not linger. Two of these crusades, one from 1195 to 1198, under Henry VI, Emperor of Germany, and the other from 1216 to 1240, under the Emperor Frederick II and Andrew II, King of Hungary, are unconnected with France and almost exclusively German or in origin and range confined to Eastern Europe. They led, in Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, to wars, negotiations, and manifold complications. Jerusalem fell, once more, for a while, into the hands of the Christians, and there, on the 18th of March, 1229, in the Church of the Resurrection, the Emperor Frederick II, at that time, excommunicated by Pope Gregory IX, placed with his own hands the royal crown upon his head but these events confused disconnected and short-lived as they were did not produce in the west and especially in france any considerable reverberation and did not exercise upon the relative situations of europe and asia of christendom and islamry any really historical influence in people's lives and in the affairs of the world There are many movements of no significance, and more cries than wool, and those facts only which have had some weight and some duration, are here to be noted, for study and comprehension. The event which has been called the Fifth Crusade, was not wanting, so far, in real importance, and it would have to be described here, if it had been really a crusade, but it does not deserve the name. The Crusades were a very different thing from wars and conquests. Their real and peculiar characteristic was that they should be struggles between Christianity and Islamism, between the fruitful civilization of Europe and the barbarism and stagnation of Asia. Therein consist their originality and their grandeur. It was certainly on this understanding, and with this view, that Pope Innocent Third one of the greatest men of the thirteenth century, seconded with all his might the movement which was at that time springing up again in favor of a fresh crusade, and which brought about, in 1202, an alliance between a great number of powerful lords, French, Flemish, and Italian, and the Republic of Venice for the purpose of recovering Jerusalem from the infidels. But from the very first The ambition, the opportunities, and the private interests of the Venetians, combined with the recollection of the perfidy displayed by the Greek emperors, diverted the new crusaders from the design they had proclaimed. What Bohemond, during the First Crusade, had proposed to Godfrey de Bouillon, and what the Bishop of Langres, during the Second, had suggested to Louis the Young, namely, THE CAPTURE OF CONSTANTINOPLE, FOR THE SAKE OF ENSURING, THAT OF JERUSALEM. THE FIRST CRUSADERS OF THE THIRTEENTH CENTURY WERE LED BY BIAS, GREED, ANGER, AND SPITE, TO TAKE IN HAND AND ACCOMPLISH. THEY CONQUERED CONSTANTINOPLE, AND HAVING ONCE MADE THAT CONQUEST, THEY TROUBLED THEMSELVES NO MORE ABOUT JERUSALEM. FOUNDED MAY sixteenth, twelve 1204. In the person of Baldwin Ninth, Count of Flanders, the Latin Empire of the East, existed for seventy years, in the teeth of many a storm, only to fall once more, in 1273, into the hands of the Greek emperors, overthrown in 1453 by the Turks, who are still in possession. One circumstance connected rather with literature than politics, Gives Frenchmen a particular interest in this conquest of the Greek Empire by the Latin Christians, for it was a Frenchman, Geoffrey de Villehardouin, seneschal of Theobald the Third, Count of Champagne, who, after having been one of the chief actors in it, wrote the history of it, and his work strictly historical as to facts, and admirably epic in description of character and warmth of coloring is one of the earliest and finest monuments of French literature. But to return to the real crusades. End of chapter 17, part 4